And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, August 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, stuff you are not supposed to buy finds its way onto GSA multiple award schedule contracts. Plus, few commissions can leave more permanent results than this one. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the American Federation of Government Employees has taken a new step towards establishing itself among Defense Department employees in Europe. It's signing up new members and plans to have at least one new organizing body in place by the end of the year. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got the latest from Special Assistant to the National Vice President of AFGE's District 14, Peter Winch. We have had a couple of small locals in Europe, but there's just been a lot more interest from employees. And we've we've decided to charter an at-large local in Europe, Local 14, to go along with District 14. And uh, the federal employees there have been joining. At this point, we have, we've only been around a couple of months and we are just asking people to join on an at-large basis. When it comes time to ask the Federal Labor Relations Authority to hold an election, that'll be in certain specific locations or job categories. When I say we've got 100 members, we're not all in one. That's across the continent of Europe and across the different DOD agencies. There are what you might call hotspots, and we have formed eight small organizing committees, and those committees need to get a 30% showing of interest. And the showing of interest is confidential. So like we're working with the base exchange, AFIS, Army Air Force Exchange Service. We've gotten a considerable amount, and AFG represents most AFIS stateside. AFIS, uh, a base exchange is something like a Walmart or a shopping mall. And these people are federal employees, as well as some local hires and some contractors. But a lot of them are non-appropriated fund federal employees. And that's a place we've gotten a lot of interest so far. Is that just at Stuttgart? Well, our main committee is at Ramstein. And that is just the geography. When I say there's 30,000 DOD employees... A large percentage of them are in Germany, and many of those are focused are in and around Rammstein. But in both Rammstein and Stuttgart, we have active organizing committees that are, have gotten 30% or more. We, we actually try to get 30% is the legal minimum. We try to get more than that before we ask for an election. Eventually, we at least, we'd like to be all AFIs Europe-wide if we can get, go there. That's just one example. Our main focus is Defense Health Agency. This is the heart of federal government employee presence in Europe is, you might call it a new agency, the the military treatment facilities or military hospitals that might have been Army, like Walter Reed here in Washington was Army originally. They've been transferred to a a non-service or fourth estate type agency, the Defense Health Agency, really as, as of the last couple of years. Landstuhl Regional Medical Center, we have considerable interest from the nurses there they are working on a 30% or more showing of interest from the hundreds of people who work at Lanshul. That's separate from the hundred or so people that have joined and are paying dues to Local 14. And we, what we tell people, if you join our local, we will represent you on the job 
But if you form a union, we'll be able to get a contract. You know, if we file for an election with the FLRA, we'll have a contract and it won't be on that at-large basis anymore. It'll be representation with your management. If I understand it right, you've got about 100 people who are at-large members and they're represented, but you don't have a negotiating ability with them. And then the interest is sort of a polling. It's not necessarily people who are in the union. It's people who are interested in forming a union. Is that right? That's right. The the card itself says, I am asking the FLRA to conduct an election. The card says it doesn't commit me to membership or it just requests that the FLRA hold a secret ballot election. And the two things that federal employees always ask me, it's confidential, meaning the Defense Health Agency or AFES does not see who signed. They just send the FLRA a list of who they employ and the FLRA compares the two lists. And also, by signing it, I am not committed to membership. Local 14, the dues we keep very modest because it is an at-large local. The dues are at $14 a pay, and you pay that by electronic draft. Once you get a union AFG elected, usually you pay your dues by dues deduction from your payroll. So it's it's an arrangement with the employer to take dues out. It's an at-large local. And we, uh, we have an attorney in Germany, Javier Soto, and he, like he wrote to me this morning about he saved somebody's job and also saved them from being sent back to the States prematurely, which is the big threat over there. He's always working on individuals and he, he, he got the uh, word that, that they were successful. So he is actively taking cases of members who have, you know, procedural arguments or, or uh, substantial arguments about why they should not be subject to the harshest discipline. And that, that's what we see. Where there's no union, there's a lot of illogical results that aren't good for the government because people don't have due process. So for at-large members, is that the main thing you're able to do for them is represent them in individual disputes? Exactly. Any kind of statutory right you have, like an EEO right, or we just go in and do represent individuals as long as they're dues-paying members. That's Once we get a contract, we represent everybody, whether they're dues-paying members or not. What are some of the issues that are impelling people to want to join the union? The situation is where they feel, I I have heard personally talked to several people who were AFG members or stewards at a military base like Fort Campbell, and they go to, uh, they accept a position in in Europe and they can't believe the mismanagement they see. The, The lack of checks and balances is not what they're used to stateside. And they get they get management making imperious demands that I know I can send you home, so you have to do things that, that may involve cutting corners and not doing things correctly. So there's that feeling of, I, I need a voice at work. And are you hearing that coming from DHA employees? Yes, we have a group of both, actually nurses and doctors and also some other technicians. So we have a group of DHA employees that are interested in having a, a well-run hospital, and they want to see Landstuhl as a, a better-run facility. They want to be part of that as, prof- as medical professionals, uh, credential providers. The Defense Health Agency is going to be going to be building a brand new hospital right next to Landstuhl. So we want we want that hospital to be to be launched in the in the right way, in the best possible way, with employee involvement and improvements in procedures. And you said you had already filed paperwork with FLRA. What have you filed so far? Where are you in that process? We did file for AFES, Stuttgart Panzer. It's a Stuttgart exchange, but there's a few little 
uh, satellite locations as well. We haven't gotten that opening letter yet, so I don't have any. What the FLRA does is investigate. They issue an opening letter, and then they investigate if we haven't, not only if we have enough showing, but is our unit correctly described. And so we haven't gotten there yet. We filed our first petition with the, we hope to file many, many more. That's a shop of 50 or so. We, I think it's like 300 and something working for AFES in Ramstein. So we have a, had some contact with the AFES management here and in, and in AFES Europe. We hope to have those two elections soon. And there's other locations, both AFES, both uh, NAF, non-appropriate fund and GS around Europe. Peter Winch of the American Federation of Government Employees speaking to Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, few commissions in Washington can leave more permanent results than this one. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In Washington, it seems like there's a commission for everything. Mostly they produce reports no one reads. But there's one commission that's established a string of permanent accomplishments the world over you can see, touch, and feel. It's the American Battle Monuments Commission. This year it celebrates 100 years in business. We get a review from Commission Secretary Charles DeJou. Mr. DeJou, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And we should point out it's not really a commission in the sense you usually think about it. You are a small federal agency. Yes, that's correct. The ABMC is an independent federal agency established in 1923 in the wake of World War One. And yes, this year is our 100th anniversary. And how many people work there? We have a little over 500 individuals. The ABMC, we were very, very proud and, and humbled. Uh, our responsibility is to maintain and honor the service and sacrifice of America's armed services around the world. We manage uh, America's 26 American cemeteries and battlefields, 32 memorials uh, across 17 countries throughout the, throughout the world. And for me, it's a humbling honor to, to be able to lead this wonderful, wonderful agency. And just explain for us the process here a little bit, because often the establishment of memorials, like, say, the World War II memorial, which is... Gosh, it's not that new anymore, but a lot of controversy, a lot of planning, a lot of disagreement. They get built often with private funds or part federal funds and part private funds. So how do they come under the purview of the commission? Do they? What's your relationship to that whole process? That's a good question. So a couple of things. First, when our agency was established in the wake of World War One, our first chairman was General John Pershing, who, of course, led American forces in the First World War. The thought process was, how do we properly take care of America's war dead in Europe from the First World War? And as well as how do we properly memorialize the battles that America had fought during the First World War? Well, the ABMC was created uh, by Congress, signed into law by then-President Harding, uh, to take care of and, and manage that. And so we have now have all the, the, the battlefield uh, cemeteries from the First World War. And then, of course, after the Second World War, those battlefield cemeteries also. And then we also manage and have created uh, numerous memorials to America's armed services around the world. Most are in Europe, but not all. And it's interesting you should mention the World War II memorial here in Washington, D.C. That also was a memorial that ABMC helped design and create for the most, but not all of the memorial, war memorials that are federal major memorials in the United States, ABMC has built it. But then after construction, we hand it over to the National Park Service. 
So the World War II Memorial, the World War I Memorial, as well as the Korean War Memorial were all built by the AVNC, but today are managed by the National Park Service. You had asked in terms of uh, funding. Uh, so my agency is funded, of course, by the federal government and the American taxpayers. The construction of a lot of these memorials, it was a shared partnership for the domestic memorials between the U.S. Congress funding most of it, but not all of it, and the balance being funded from private donors. That certainly was the case with World War I, uh, World War II, and the Korean War Memorial. The overseas memorials, on the other hand, are almost all entirely funded by the United States taxpayers. There must be a little diplomacy involved there because it's paid for yeah. by taxpayers, but it is on another country's soil. And so when yeah. you want to go in and do yeah. something, there's probably got to be a little give and take, fair to say? Yes, that is. Yes, that is fair to say. You know, in, in most of the instances for our agency, the host nation is extraordinarily grateful for the service and sacrifice of America's armed forces. Most of these memorials, the communities are extraordinarily grateful for, for what America did around the world, whether it is our memorials at, say, Chateau Thierry, which is in, in France, Musargon, Montfaucon. Uh, these are all examples of memorials where the French people and the, the local villages were very, very grateful for America's service and sacrifice. What tends to come up is, you know, decades after the, the conflict and the battle, there are sometimes things that we need to discuss with the local governments regarding traffic, maintenance of the surrounding areas, which the U.S. government does not have control over. Those are things that tend to crop up these days. Sure. But as a broad general statement, the, the AVMC, I'm very happy to say, is very, very warmly welcomed. And our agency, may I just say, it invites all of your listeners, all of your viewers, please come visit our sites around the world. I think uh, there are not enough Americans who really understand what America has done around the world for, for democracy and liberty. We're speaking with Charles DeJoux. He is secretary of the American Battle Monuments Commission. And by the way, do we have any monuments or memorials in countries that we were formerly at war with? Like, for example, is there anything in Vietnam? That, too, is a, is, is a, is a good question. So uh, my agency, in previous decades, my predecessors made a conscious decision not to have memorials in Germany or Japan, where America has had some conflicts with. We do have uh, an American cemetery and memorial in the Philippines dedicated to most of our war dead uh, from the Philippines. I know America's history in the Philippines can be a little bit controversial. We also have a site in Mexico City from the Mexican-American War. That, too, I know is a tiny bit controversial. But no, nothing in Germany or Japan. We have had some very, very preliminary discussions of maybe perhaps doing something in Vietnam. But right now, there is no site in Vietnam, uh, nor do we have a site, say, for example, in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Sure. I think the Vietnamese are more mad at the French to this day than they are at the yeah. Americans. So maybe, yeah. maybe yes. that could happen someday. And how exactly are you commemorating 100 years? We're very excited. So we've done a number of events uh, around the world. For our agency, we commissioned a film celebrating the 100 years of the ABM. We have um, been hosting this film at events uh, throughout across the United States. For example, we've had events at the World War II Museum in New, New Orleans, the World War I Museum over in Kansas City, the Pritzker in Chicago. We're having an event coming up in New York City. Uh, another event uh, we're having at the USS Midway Museum in San Diego in California. So these are all activities that we're doing, uh, and of course, around the world at all of our our American cemeteries, we've had bigger and smaller events, but this is something we're very excited about. Because you're, you're right, you began this program saying that uh, there's not 
too many Americans who know about our agency, but our agency is very proud to share the story of American service sacrifice and what American service members have done. Sure. And we'd like more Americans to know this story as agency secretary. Um, the communities and the host nations are very familiar with what America has done for liberty, but too often not enough Americans know what Americans have done. And that's something we're trying to rectify. And in the management of cemeteries, that's a shared responsibility. I mean, the military itself operates a couple of the cemeteries, like Arlington, and then you've got Veterans Affairs, which has its uh, domestic cemeteries around the United States, and then you have cemeteries overseas that you maintain and operate. Do you ever get your heads together on best practices in how to maintain these types of sacred grounds? So uh, Arlington National Cemetery and Veterans Affairs, our sister agencies, we're very happy to work with and collaborate with, and you're exactly right, looking forward to doing best practices with them. Uh, the core dividing line is uh, the AVMC. We handle the cemeteries outside the United States, whereas Veterans Affairs handles the ones inside the United States. So we also have the added uh, additional element that my agency cooperates and works with my sister agencies uh, internationally. Uh, so as a, for example, the Great Britain's Commonwealth War Graves, uh, Francis Onak, uh, which are the similar agencies to my agency uh, from France and Great Britain. Uh, we work with them also. Uh, so it's, it's both uh, collaborating with America's other sister agencies as well as our international sister agencies. And just briefly, how did you get to this job? What's your background? <laughs> so in terms of my background, I uh, have previously served in Congress. I represented uh, Hawaii's first congressional district, had been involved in Hawaii politics for a number of years. Uh, but much more importantly, I'm an Afghanistan war veteran. I have served for 23 years uh, in the Army Reserve. I'm a colonel in the Army Reserve. And I think through this connection uh, with politics, with the Army, my interest in, in military history, I am very humbled to, to have been appointed by the president to this position. We'll call you Colonel Charles DeJou, Secretary of the American Battle Monuments Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. And let me just say and encourage all of you listeners and viewers, again, please come visit our sites. And if you don't have a time to come out to, to visit one of our sites around the world, visit us online at abmc.org. We, we would really love to welcome more Americans uh, to our sites. All right. And we'll post this interview along with a link to some of those pieces of information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Ukraine war could gum up federal budget negotiations. But first, stuff you were not supposed to buy finds its way onto GSA multiple award schedule contracts. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. By law and regulation, certain products are barred from purchase by federal agencies. Things like telecommunications products made in China. Yet the General Services Administration's Office of Inspector General has found that somehow prohibited products have made their way onto the multiple award schedule contracts. Here with more, the Deputy Assistant IG for Acquisition Program Audits, Barbara Bolden. Ms. Bolden, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. And the Regional Inspector General for Auditing, Michelle Westrup. Ms. Westrup, good to have you with us. Thank you. What prompted this audit? You must have had some clue that some of these products were somehow getting onto the schedules. Ms. Bolden? So, Tom, this audit was included in our FY or fiscal year 2021 audit plan. We certainly were aware of the supply chain risk management challenge to GSA. 
Um, we identified that in our fiscal year 21 and 22 management challenges report to GSA. And so this audit um, sort of follows our typical annual plan in which we um, plan for audits that are highest priorities. And that's sort of where this job, the genesis of this audit. Yeah, this from. relates to that whole supply chain question in general, doesn't it? Yes, it does. All right. And maybe, Ms. Westrup, just give us a sense of what some of the products are, refresh our memory on what you can't have in federal acquisition. Sure, absolutely. So in response to the federal supply chain risk that Barbara referred to, Congress passed the 2018 NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, and the 2019 NDAA as well. In those laws, those laws prohibit the federal government's procurement of certain telecommunication items from named entities, some that you alluded to in your intro as well. So in the 2017 NDAA, it prohibited the federal government's procurement of hardware, software, and services by Kaspersky. And then in 2018, that's when it added on those Chinese companies that you mentioned before. So this is the Huawei ZTE crowd. Correct. Correct. Yes. And in this audit, then, were you looking at whether directly those products were somehow on some of the schedule contracts, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them, or were you looking at GSA Federal Acquisition Services processes for ensuring that those things don't get onto the schedules? Actually, both. We started by our objective was to look at the FAS's internal processes for identifying those items and then removing them off of schedule contracts. However, in doing that, we also wanted to do some field work and audit work as well. So we got in there and judgmentally sampled some contracts ourselves for prohibited items, and, and that's where we had our findings. And the people that were carrying these products, they had legitimate MAS contracts, probably of long-term standing. Were they resellers or manufacturers or service providers? I mean, who's who's got these things for sale? Yes. By and large, what we found in our audit, they were resellers, which obviously resellers are out there on contract offering hundreds of products, sometimes from many different manufacturers. So yes, in, in our audit, that's what we found. And it's safe to say that over the years, the process for modifying contracts, changing prices, adding, subtracting specific products, GSA has deliberately made that much more frictionless in, in the recent, really for a couple of decades now, they've been working on making things cheaper, faster, easier for both the government and for the contractors. That's what GSA has purported, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so give us some more specifics of what you actually found. I mean, you, you found like a ZTE router or something on a reseller's multiple award schedules contract? So generally, we found a few things. So the first thing we found is that there are certain controls that FAS has in place, the Federal Acquisition Service has in place. We found that some of those were insufficient and unreliable. And those specifically that we talked to in the report. The first is contractor self-certification. So when a contractor comes in and wants to put their items on contract, their products, their services, they must self-certify if they provide or use these prohibited telecom items. So we found that that was insufficient because in each of the 23 contracts that FAS itself identified with prohibited telecom items, the contractor had self-certified that it didn't use these items. But in fact, they, they were found to have those items on contract. Wow. And there's a program called uh, Prohibited Products RoboMod. 
Yes. That sounds so that's like the, something, a vacuum cleaner, but that's not what it is. Or maybe it is in some sense. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So so that's the second control that we found to be insufficient. It is a federal acquisition service process that flags potentially prohibited telecom items from GSA Advantage. And GSA Advantage is GSA's online ordering system. So based upon keyword searches, this RoboMod process We'll go through, um, we'll scour GSA Advantage and then flag potentially prohibited telecom items. And we found some weaknesses with the RoboMod process as well. We found that FAS doesn't ensure that contractors remove those items after the RoboMod process identifies them. We found that the RoboMod process wasn't flagging all of the items. Lengthy delays were in place when the RoboMod did flag items. Sometimes it still took months to get an item off contract, those types of things. We're speaking with Michelle Westrup, Regional Inspector General for Auditing, and with Barbara Bolden, Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Acquisition Program Audits, both at the General Services Administration. And was there evidence that the products were actually acquired by a federal agency using the MAS and therefore being delivered to an agency? Yes. FAS did know of a few instances in which in which that took place, yes. Because that's surprising. You would think given all of the publicity and to say nothing of the rules and regulations and statutes against this, that somewhere someone along the line would catch it and say, wait a minute, that's ZTE. I don't think you should be buying that. It's almost like if you went into a tobacco shop before they legalized marijuana and they offered you pot, you'd say, wait a minute, you can't sell that to me. Barbara? In that vein, that FAST wasn't taking the adequate actions against those contractors that repeatedly violated those restrictions. They also didn't have a process in place to notify the customer agencies about their purchases of those prohibited items. And then their initial compliance with FAR requirements didn't include the subsidiaries and affiliates of those entities. So there there are controls there, but we found those actions were not fully followed through. All right. So then you must have a long list of recommendations. We did. Actually, we had five recommendations. In a nutshell, honestly, they were to strengthen and enforce the processes and internal controls that FAS currently has in place, and then establish new internal controls to help ensure compliance with these contractual requirements. Um, We got a little more detailed in our recommendations, which you can find in our report, but um, we specifically refer to the RoboMod and things and the more stringent consequences that we'd like to see for contractors that repeatedly attempt to offer these items. Yeah, I was going to say the contractors need probably some kind of a sanctioning or warning system. Could it be simply that they might have a commercial side to their business where I guess some companies are still okay in the commercial world with buying these products and therefore they just get into their line card and somewhere internally they're not making that bifurcation between their commercial line card and their federal line card? That for sure is possible. However, yeah, we all they all have a shared responsibility to not purchase these. Right. Not your problem. They've got to figure that one out. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. They have a a responsibility to monitor the contract compliance. And did the FAS, the Federal Acquisition Service, generally agree with you here? They did. They agreed with all recommendations. Okay. So it sounds like something you're going to follow up on maybe in a few months to see if that slate has been wiped clean. Right. Currently, FAS has to provide a corrective action plan to our recommendations. We have not yet um, received that. It's not due for another few weeks now. And once we receive that, we'll take a look at their intended actions 
ensure that they're responsive to our recommendations um, and then accept that. And then we always do have review process, I guess, in place to come back in and look at this program and ensure that those items and actions were actually taken. And in the meantime, you know, it, it's better to correct a problem than to have operational adjustment for it. But in the meantime, you can kind of maybe send that message out to the contracting community and to the acquisition community, the agencies as, you know, have your guard up for this kind of thing. Yeah, we'd hope that they would move on that corrective action immediately. <laughs> Barbara Bolden is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Acquisition Program Audits, and Michelle Westrup is Regional IG for Auditing at the General Services Administration. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom, for having us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, how the Ukraine war could gum up federal budget negotiations. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Congress has passed just one of 12 bills needed to fund the government for next fiscal year. And when members return early next month, the question of further funding for Ukraine in its war with Russia will come into the debates. For what this could all mean, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And this has been a dot on the horizon that's rising to a cloud size debate over Ukraine, sounds like, Mitchell. Right. And we saw that when the White House released the $40 billion supplemental request last week, which includes... $13 billion in defense funds for Ukraine, plus additional billions for a lot of other things related to Ukraine. We knew that this was potentially going to blow up at some point in the coming weeks, months. And right now, we're already getting a huge amount of pushback from members of the House Freedom Caucus, conservative Republicans in the House, who just say they do not want to spend any more money on Ukraine. Now, to put it in perspective, Congress has approved about $113 billion for Ukraine up to this point. And as I think you and I talked about when this all first started, we knew that there was at some point going to be some fatigue, uh, not only with Congress, but with the American public about how long that this could go on. So what now is about to happen is a real showdown over whether or not this funding is going to get approved. House Republicans, as I said, are looking to fight this all the way. But on the other side, the Senate's top Republican, Mitch McConnell, has been a consistent supporter of Ukraine aid. So we're going to have to see what happens as the House and the Senate eventually come down to this showdown in the coming month. Well, the math, I guess, matters if you subtract out the Republicans that don't want this money and leave the ones that do and add them to the Democrats that do in the House could it pass? It could pass, and it will have to pass with a lot of Democratic support, as well as probably a lot of support from moderate Republicans. So that could happen. I think what's going to be interesting is to see how this actually comes together in connection with the overall uh, federal budget and the spending plans over the next several weeks. Uh, right now, there is a lot of talk, as there usually is around this time, about whether or not we're going to get a continuing resolution. Could this pass if it's all folded into a 
stopgap measure, which a lot of House Republicans don't want. But frankly, they have also acknowledged that they that may have to happen. So they may try to get on the record saying we are voting against this, but then they will need to get the Democrats support. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will have to get some kind of support from Democrats if they're able to get this through. Yes, because in the absence of a CR, the only other choice is a partial lapse in appropriations. Right. And really, there's been a lot of growing talk about whether or not there's going to be a government shutdown. Uh, There are people on the record, uh, Bob Good of Virginia among them, who have said he doesn't care if there is a shutdown. He thinks that the exaggeration of the problems related to a shutdown are, are, well, he thinks that they're over-exaggerated. He doesn't think that it could be as much of a problem as not taking a specific position on this. So there are a lot of conservatives in the House that don't want anything to move forward. And of course, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, can only afford to lose four votes. So this is not just a thing where people are just squawking about things that they're criticizing. This is something that could really uh, be held up. And if it does get held up, then we'll have to see what happens after that. But uh, certainly there is a lot of concern right now that there could be a shutdown, at least temporarily. And the Republicans seem to have like a big rack full of heavy kettlebells, and they've (laughs) chained one of them to the nominations for general officer promotions in the military, as has been going on and on and on. And now you're reporting that Texas Representative Chip Roy has threatened to withhold DHS funding for right. his, his wants. And this goes back to a long time problem that House Republicans just think that the Biden administration has not adequately addressed. And of course, that is security on the southern border. And last week, Texas Congressman Chip Roy, as you noted, said that he would not allow anyone to, uh, in his uh, conference, which would be the House Freedom Caucus, to basically go along with anything that would fund the Department of Homeland Security. And of course, this is also in connection with the grievances that House Republicans have about the uh, DHS secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, who many want to impeach. He has set up a series of uh, conditions that Chip Roy, that he feels that have to be reached before conservative Republicans will go along with it. And after he made that announcement, roughly about 15 House Republicans said they would join him. So again, not a, a situation where it's just out there people complaining about it. These are actual votes when you have such a tight majority that the GOP has in the House that they really could make a difference and gum things up as we move forward into this period of really critical time for getting the federal budget passed. Yeah, and if there's no DHS funding, that means nothing for Transportation Security Administration, which means the airline snafus would end because there would be no airline flights. Right, exactly. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. And then closer to the federal bureaucracy, there is interesting this bill from Eleanor Holmes Norton, Delegate Norton from D.C., to get rid of the pay compression or lift the pay ceilings for high-level, long-serving senior career officials who, by statute, can't earn more than political appointees. Exactly. And this was something that she tried to introduce last year, and it didn't quite come together. Of course, a lot of veteran federal workers, their ears perk up when they hear about this because they know about this all too well. Uh, She has introduced the Federal Employee Pay Compression Relief Act, which, as you noted, would allow many of these people at the G15 level, people who have been in federal government for a long time, to get those pay adjustments that they are really entitled to, in her view, but except 
except for this pay cap that's already in place, because, of course, they can't exceed the pay rates for political appointees and other people on the executive schedule. So this would allow those people to get that kind of pay hike that they a lot of them want. Of course, the White House had proposed a 5.2% federal pay raise for the coming fiscal year, but those people who have been in the government a long, long time, many of them would not get that pay increase. So this is something that uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton is really touting. We'll see how much support there is. Obviously, again, we have a lot of House Republicans who do not want to spend any additional money. So she's going to have uh, some work to do to try to get this move forward. Yeah, sounds like that game they do up on the national scoreboard. Will this sink or float? You you (laughs) guess and see what happens. And then, the, of course, the famous memo now a couple of weeks ago on a Friday afternoon from the White House, from the Oval Office, really, from the chief of staff, Jeff Zients, about getting people back into the office. What's the feeling on Capitol Hill about, we know the administration, even though it won't come out quite explicitly and have it come from President Biden himself. They want people back in the office, in the federal offices. Is Capitol Hill leaning that way, too, pretty much, do you think? Absolutely. I think so. And, you know, a lot of Republicans, of course, don't want to give any kind of uh, benefit of the doubt to the White House. But on this one, they're on the same page. They really want, uh, as we've talked about over many months, to get a lot of people back into the office. And many uh, Republicans, as well as Democrats, were pleased to see that the Biden administration was, in some views, finally pushing to get these people back into their offices. Uh, of course, a lot of things, a lot of moving parts here. Uh, they want to get more people into their offices by September and October. And as Federal News Network has pointed out, uh, it varies from agency to agency. But essentially, for most of them, at least that are moving in this direction, they want to get people back into the offices at least four or five times, in some cases, six times over a, a two-week period. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. But I think once Congress gets back, you're going to continue to see this pressure, whether it's on the floor or it's in committee hearings. Uh, And we've heard a lot from Republicans about this, the need to get people back into the office. I think this is only going to continue once lawmakers return. By the way, when they do return, the Senate doesn't come back until the 5th of September, and the House doesn't come back until the 12th of September. That only leaves the House 12 actual working days to get all these appropriations bills that we were talking about past. So I think we really are headed down the road of probably another stopgap continuing resolution. Yeah, it's like watching a bomb drop in slow motion. Everyone knows what's going to happen. We just have to wait for it to hit the ground. And So true. Wow. Mitchell Miller is WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, August 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Stuff You Are Not Supposed to Buy finds its way onto the GSA Multiple Awards Schedule Contract. Plus, few Washington commissions can leave more permanent results than this one. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department's new memo detailing the next steps for the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, or JWCC, program. It's not all about mandates. It's more of a scene-setter for where DOD's chief information officer wants the JWCC to take defense components. For more, and on the long, twisted road to this joint warfighting cloud capability, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the DOD's deputy CIO, Lily Zalecki. It gives us an opportunity to just forecast and broadcast to the entire department our intention for why we went through the great lengths to put together such an incredible contract with JWCC that brings the hyperscale CSPs, sort of brings us on par with the commercial offerings for cloud compute and services, and basically, you know, tells the department that our intention is to maximize the use of JWCC, this enterprise cloud, multi-cloud capability to the maximum extent possible. In addition, it sort of lays out that now that we have this multi-cloud capability for the enterprise, how do we look at what we have already going, all the cloud activities that have sprouted up for need, that is, understandably so. So it's going to help us rationalize. So we preview that and that our intention is to do that and ultimately also hold every single one of us accountable that we're going to do what we say we will do in the memo and in the guidance and for the reasons that we put together this JWCC contract. So we're going to you know, establish a good governance that's going to help us walk that. So let's talk about some of those goals. I mean, you, you lay out a couple really specific areas you want folks to start on. For instance, you talk about the fourth estate or, or the defense agencies really looking at JWCC for all new cloud requirements, moving existing cloud services to JWCC. That's obviously easy to say, hard to do. Maybe walk me through how you're going to kind of try to help those organizations meet those goals. Honestly, you said it. It is not easy and that we know that to bring the entire department from the siloed contracts that we've been putting together to meet mission need now to say, everyone drop what you're doing and now follow JWCC. That's why I think that we constructed the memo that we, the way we did, because our number one priority is one, to make sure that we don't break mission. So we are going to walk this wisely and methodically, and we're going to take this step by step. So starting, you know, the fourth estate for all in JWCC, once contracts expire, makes sense because we're at an OSD level, they are providing enterprise capabilities for the most part. And there's really no reason why the fourth estate and the OSD components uh, should not hop on to JWCC. And if there are, then, you know, we'll go through the evaluation process to determine 
you know, what makes sense. We're not going to do anything that doesn't make sense. But ultimately, we've gone through such great lengths to put together this incredible offering. And we want to make sure that we eat our own uh, dog food, as you as you will. So that's us, the fourth estate, the, the OSD components. We will go first um, because also the military departments have gone through great lengths to set up their own enterprise cloud platforms. And we don't want to perturb the incredible missions that they're accomplishing through those to make sure that we're walking this wisely. So ultimately, that's sort of the methodical thought process and the way we even constructed uh, the memo, the guidance memo when we did it. Generally speaking, when you talk about the fourth estate or defense agencies or even the military departments, all of them are using Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Oracle in some way or the other. I mean, I guess there could be some outliers, but for what JWCC is providing, uh, really platform and infrastructure as a service for the most part, they're already there. So is it more simple than maybe it seems like? And simple is maybe not the right word, maybe more straightforward. Hey, we're using Microsoft on this contract. Now we'll use Microsoft on JWCC. It's really just a lift and shift, which I know is probably a bad term for cloud. First of all, when we talk JWCC, it's this is the enabling contract capability. So there's nothing to lift and shift, right? If it happens you know, through the task order, a service or a component was already using AWS and they ended up getting AWS, is they just switch contracts, right? It's, it's switching the vehicle that they're using. Most critical part to remember about JWCC is one, it streamlines, to your point, there's many contract vehicles that have popped up over the years as we've learned and done cloud that we really need to streamline. So it is really an imperative for us to be a joint force, interoperable, looking at commonality across clouds, et cetera, for us to really be on the same vehicle, the same multi-cloud uh, construct. So that's really what JWCC helps us do is tr start to streamline that. And then the rationalization piece is really where you're sort of hinting at, which is really now we need to look at our entire cloud portfolio to determine how are we going to now start right-sizing? Because to your point, the components have stood up contracts, but contracts are not forever, right? They expire, the conditions evolve, but really with JWCC, our ability to deal directly with the commercial sector, the whole point is to continue to evolve with the mission need and then with innovation, right? As the commercial sector continues to evolve there and really honestly speaking, technology is evolving so fast that to bring up a contract and put down a contract and try to catch up is really a FET for any component. So JWCC actually helps us sort of even rein that in and helps us continue to keep up with the technology trend, et cetera. Lily, let me go to the other part of the memo that I thought was really interesting, which is this idea of the military departments and defense agencies. I think the word shall or strongly encouraged to use JWCC for secret and top secret cloud services. Walk me through that decision a little bit. I think the way we step through the initial conditions and requirements is, like I said, the fourth estate and OSD components really as their contracts expire, should really be hopping on JWCC 
to the, the maximum extent possible for unclassified secret top secret across the board. For the military departments, to the point I made earlier, they've made a lot of investments in uh, establishing, especially on the unclassified side, quite a bit of their cloud activities. And really they drive a lot of the warfighting missions and we really don't wanna break missions. So we are lenient on the unclassified piece, but we strongly encourage, again, we're not really mandating it, but we're strongly encourage the secret and top secret piece, especially the top secret piece, was an incredible gap that we had in DOD that we've brought to the table. And we really want that to be used to the maximum extent possible. And really that's where also it makes sense from just overall our mission perspective that we really need to be in a joint manner and that we need to be interoperable and consistent across the board. So really that was the idea behind it is to really walk this wisely. And, you know, we can certainly mandate things, but mandates are not really the point. The point is how are we going to ensure that one, we don't break mission, but also how do we support, ultimately this is an enabler. So we want to enable the components, the military departments. We want them to want to come to JWCC. So as they see the trends, uh, I can guarantee it, they're going to start. And really the buying power is going to be incredible for us also. So it's going to ultimately work itself out as we walk the journey. Lily Zalecki is the Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Information Enterprise at the Defense Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, few Washington commissions can leave more permanent results than this one. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.